If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yep, I'm ready. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and I'm here with the one and only Jason Knight. And before we get into it, let me just take care of a bit of business. What do you say? First things first is Broadback Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder. They are they're knife makers, metal workers, uh, wood workers, and these grinders are awesome for everybody. You don't have to be a knife maker to get one horizontal vertical they have great attachments it's a great opportunity to have a good grinder for your shop and if you go to broadbackironworks.com you can put in the promo code knife talk 200 for 200 off any of the grinder packages including the max premium and the mega package or if you were looking for sharpening systems they have a great sharpening system surface belt surface grinder and leather sewing machine put in knife talk 100 you're gonna get 100 off of those so go check out broadback ironworks and listen, they're knife makers, and they're making, they're making great machines for knife makers, metal workers, and everybody else. Next is Even Heat. Even Heat are the sponsors of this podcast, and they make the, some of the best heat treat ovens on the market. Uh, I've, been, I've known the guys at Even Heat for quite a long time. And if you go to evenheat-kiln.com, you can check out all their beautiful kilns. And if, you check, if, you're, if you're making knives, you're making swords and hammers, you're making axes, all these things that need to be hardened, you're going to need a heat treat oven. And why not get an even heat? So go check out what they have over at Even Heat. Uh, like I said, known this family for quite a long time and uh, up in Michigan, and they're fantastic. They're fantastic. So thank you once again, Even Heat. Next is Axe Wax. Axe Wax, all natural food safe wax for your axe. All for your wood, for your carbon steel, for your Damascus, for whatever you got. It's all natural food safe. And if you go to axewax.us, put in the promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all of your Axe Wax. Uh, and if you're in the UK, go to UKKnifesupplies.com. They're taking Full Blast 10. Uh, KnifeMaterial.at, if they're in the EU, they're taking Full Blast 10. Gamaco in Australia and my other sponsor, Nordic Edge, they're all taking Full Blast 10 for your axe wax. So why don't you get yourself some of that axe wax and put some wax on that axe. You know what I'm saying? Next is Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is up in Canada for all your knife-making needs, belts, braces, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat treat ovens, anvils, whatever you need to get started or resupply, including axe wax. They're in Canada, but they ship to the United States, and I don't know how they do it, frankly, but they do it just as fast as everybody else. And if you go check out what they're doing over at Maritime Knife Supply, there's lots of stuff. There's lots of stuff. They have Dr. Laren Thomas's book, Knife Engineering. They have uh, uh, 10 packs of abrasive belts, and you get 10% off when you buy that 10-pack. They have all sorts of stuff. And if you needed something that you said, you say to yourself, I really need this. Go give Lawrence a call over there, and I'm sure he'll get to it because he's involved with the knife-making community. He's done a lot of great things for the New England School of Metalwork, and he is a great part of the community. So I thank you very much, Maritime Knife Supply. Uh, Total Boat. 
Total Bolt, baby. Total Bolt makes adhesive paints, primers, polishing compounds. They were for boaters and DIYers, and they understand that your projects need to go smoothly. So go get yourself some of that two-part epoxy. I use the two-part epoxy. I think it's awesome. I mean, if it works on boats, well, what the hell? It's going to work for you. Uh, you could be like... Keith, Keith Mitchell, Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, even Jimmy Duresta. He's taking all these dead animals and shoving them in the two-part epoxy and making sculptures with them. Why not? Uh, definitely go to TotalBoat.com. Put in the promo code FULLBLAST10. You're going to get 10% off your order of TotalBoat. TotalBoat, baby. I love it. Um, I want to definitely thank our friends at Trojan Horse Forge, the makers of the stable, nail, stable rail knife finishing vice built in the heart of Texas. This is a, a knife finishing vice that you never thought you needed until you got one, and then you realize it's the only one you're going to need. Get rid of them two-by-fours. You don't need them anymore. They make a great, great vice for not only for hand sanding your blades, but also finishing your handles. They just did a great... Uh, they did a great event for our my next guest, Jason Knight, trying to give him make a little bit of money for him. Um, and I appreciate them. I appreciate I appreciate Sam. Sam. Sam and the guys over at Trojan Horse Forge. And if you want to get yourself one of them, but you can't lump it all out, they take payment plans too. So go get yourself one of the best knife finishing vices on the market, Trojan Horse Forge. And last, but certainly not least, Nordic Edge. Nordic Edge down in Australia. They are a company making, uh, they have pro tools for knife makers in Australia. They also have, they're the, one of the makers of uh, the screw-on carbide file guides that are dynamite. I actually just used mine last week. It was terrific. It's great. The guys over at Nordic Edge are doing a lot of great things for knife makers and people who want to just get interested in knife making in Australia. Let's say you don't have a heat treat oven. Let's say you don't have a grinder. You want to put a knife together. They have kits. You can get one of them kits. Get a slap a couple handle scales on there, bingo, bango, bongo. Maybe this is your introduction to knife making, and here you go. Why, why not do that? So go to nordicedge.com um, and full blast 10. We're going to give you 10% off your axe wax. Uh, they have knife making supplies, abrasives, grinders, tooling kits available, hammers, all sorts of things to get you up and running. And they just got did a really great uh, give back program for our friend Kev Slattery, who had some major uh, spinal disc surgery, and they donated a lot of money towards helping him on the road to recovery. So go to nordicedge.com.au, get yourself. And they also, they're also involved with, uh, I believe that their, um, their file guides are also at the Maritime Knife Supply. So we have, some, we have some correlation. We have some relationships here. So nordicedge.com.au, thank you so much. And without any further ado, my guest, Needs no introduction. Jason Knight is an extraordinary bladesmith. He is the student of some of the best knife makers and a teacher to more of the best. He is a conduit of generation, generational information. Jason Knight, how are you? I'm telling you, dude. I, I, you know what? I've been thinking about you quite a long time, and we've talked before, and I, we had you on Knife Talk, and you're such a huge inspiration to, to knife makers, and I was thinking about you in terms of that kind of generational information, and you're, you're this conduit from the, from the old school to the new school, and you know, it's just really pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's, that's a funny one for me, because I was thinking about that, and um, when I was coming up through this and trying to learn there are all the ogs 
and then there were some new guys, and then there was really nobody my age. <laughs> right. <laughs> like really, I felt yeah, it wasn't a lot of people my age. It was kind of strange. Um, it was me, and then Adam DeRozier's came in. I, I think we started hanging around about two thousand and four or five. And um, then he he lived with us for like a year. I might have talked about that one time, but but then me and Adam were like the Bruce brothers and coming up with things and doing crazy stuff and trying to share the information and catching the trouble from the old guys because we didn't want to make plate guards on Bowie knives. <laughs> but yeah, fun stuff. Well, first things first is I really want to congratulate you, number one, on the birth of your grandchild. Oh, yeah, that's cool. That's big news. Big news. How does it feel now that you're a, you know, you're a grandfather? I don't know. It, um, you know, it's like when you turn a certain age and somebody goes, hey, how does it feel to be this age? I'm like, I don't know yet. I'm, uh, I'm experiencing it as it goes along. So it's, but it's really cool. The baby was born in our house, which was really nice. Um, my son and his wife uh, Abigail and Tristan, baby's name is Edith Laurel Knight. Uh, it's really cool, man. I like hearing it like fuss a little bit. It sounds weird when you're when you're a new dad. You might not like to hear the baby fuss, but I like hearing the baby fuss. Like, ah, I changed my diaper. Or, I'm hungry or whatever. But it's really cool. What's the beginning stages of communication? Like it's yeah. that beginning of not being able to, the frustration of not being able to tell the per your your parent what you actually need, and it's this. You know, it's a struggle to, it's, it's, it is actually, I, I liked it too, because I felt like it was the beginning stages of, of the relationship with my daughter. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it is amazing. It is amazing. You know, on the heels of a calamity, a calamity, Christmas Eve, you, your shop burned down. That was crazy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that made it a lot better. That surely lightened the blow a good bit. And then having the support of the knife community, like, Trojan Horse Forge, um, Trojan Horse Forge guys. They make those beautiful vices, which I have one. And um, Mark M Mark McCowan did something really cool. Him and a couple of guys got together and did um, some knives and raised a couple bucks, and that was really beautiful. And uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's really wild watching people come in and just just be a part of it, you know, and uh, kind of. I had no expectations. Uh, my buddy David Lish did a knife too, you know, and then other people are still working on things, which is which is crazy cool. This is part of. I mean, I th I thinking about. I mean, I I watched your live that morning when you kind of announced that you know this tragic, this you know shocking, strange fire coming out of nowhere, and you know nothing to do with what you guys do for a living. Um, but it was like you had this. You had this incredible resilience and optimism in regards to the whole thing. Yeah, that's uh, nobody was hurt. I'm glad we weren't there because we would have tried to put it out. Right. The longer we would have tried that, the the longer it would have taken us to call the fire department. And after all, it is stuff, you know. And that's that's all it is. It's stuff, and uh, we can get that ball rolling again you know it's like an obstacle but the obstacle for me is the way so we just move forward and i can't do anything about it so there's not a lot of need for me to get a, a perpetual upset about it <laughs> i can't say that it doesn't bug me a little bit 
but it does. But what can I do? You know, I can just move forward. Well, there it started to make me think about the idea and something when I when I was I got to a, a little bit older, I started to stop coveting things, and I felt as though what you had done was, you know, because in the in the in the idea that coveting makes you feel like you, maybe you can't do it and again. Like if you cover your work, sometimes it, it sometimes that what happens is is you get this mindset where well this is the best thing I've ever done and I can't do it again. So sometimes if you kind of release that be, having if you release coveting objects or things or things that you made, it's almost like I know I can do I can know I can do this again and the next one's probably gonna be better. So it's it's actually kind of more of a freeing feeling. Oh yeah, I. It's a, it's a definitely an interesting feeling, but I like the way you've worded that. That it makes sense. Um, whenever, whenever you know, you're, I'm building a shop. I'm building a, uh, you know, as me as a knife maker, it's also my business, and we have multiple facets to it. And the location is a big part of that, but also it's it's all in it's all with you anyway. You know, like the skill, the talent between me and my wife and my family, you know, all this is still with us, even though the location is gone. And a lot of the things that we use to build that they're, they're gone. Um, but we still have all the things that we need to make it work again. It just takes time to, to rebuild it, you know, and all those things are uh, replaceable. So, you know, some of the ideas and drawings and concepts, you know, that stuff, uh, I haven't been able to find it yet. So it's over there somewhere, and uh, we're still kind of scavenging through the uh, mess, if if you would. But it's it's going in the right direction. Uh, I'd started a new building uh, back in August. It was just a property. I didn't. They didn't consider what was on it a building. It was just a wreck, pretty much, and the the walls were all like mulch. So we started working on that, and we've been working on it now. We're going to spend uh, full time working on that building until we're in it now. So it's kind of nice. Sometimes choices get made for you, and uh, even if it's not the one you would make, it's probably the right choice. And that's a strange way to be able to make a choice, but it, it happens, and I'm not special. It can happen to anybody. It definitely puts the gas on the pedal when when something like this happens. Like you got to get back to work, so that shop's going to be up and running a little bit faster than you probably expected. Oh yeah, yeah that's just the, that's the way forward. That's it's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great thing. And going back to that kind of idea of coveting, I always have felt that society has kind of come up with these words and these expressions to kind of you know tell us exactly how we're supposed to feel and. As a sculptor or a, or a knife maker, you hear these expressions like masterpiece, and you say, "This is my masterpiece." And and I used to work with other artists who were, would say, "This is you know this is the best thing I've ever done. This is my masterpiece," and it's almost like this. It's almost like this stunting of your creativity because you all of your, you you're basically you know saying in words, "This is the best it's ever going to be," and I feel as though I feel like that almost. And it's almost more of a burden on you, on you as creativity, create creatively. But I mean, regardless, watching you talk about the fire and you've done a lot of lives and you've done a lot on Instagram and you've just been very like stoic about it. But at the same time, I, all I can think of is just like, he's just, you know, this is just a roadblock for him. You're making it very, very, 
you're very, very, you're going through it in a very, very mature way as an artist. Trying. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And um, I think that's a interesting concept that I it's it is strange you meet some people and they will this is the this is everything this is right. all of it I go no it's it's not everything it's not all of it. it's not the end of it it's, it's some it's a time for a a reset or a new facet to be polished you know this is a I look at it as a big life is a big opportunity and one thing happens it could be bad okay well is it good or bad? Well, it's good because now I get to make a very definitive decision. And I could look at it as bad, but I don't have time for that. I don't really have time to to spin on it. And every time I do, I know I just get angry. So I don't want to get angry. It could be my choice. I don't have to be. And moving forward is the only way. And, that, and also, you know, speaking on that concept of... Uh, that's the someone says this is the magnum opus right like, that hadn't been done yet i think it's a process i don't think there is a one specific magnum opus you know i think there's a it's a process that when you look back you can say the whole thing is all the works cumulatively are because i don't know about you but i never make anything that i'm totally happy with i could make something that go all right now that opens up a new door here this is some new concept and i want to share it but it's not like wow this is the best thing i've ever made never i you i think when you start to become satisfied with your work regardless of what anything you're doing i think that you can really you can really i mean i'm never satisfied you know what the things that satisfy me are are efficiencies like if i come up with a new efficiency to kind of get you know the the journey is where i'm all about i'm a i'm a fan of the journey and my father is a painter, and my sisters are sculptors, and I just remember growing up, my dad, we called him 90% fader, because when he was 10% done, 10% ready to be, there's a 10% more to go, he's like, ah, I'm done. I don't, want, I don't even <laughs> care about it anymore. It was like, for, for him and for my sisters and I, it's the journey. It's the journey yeah. of it all. And for me now, the satisfaction always comes when I can kind of find efficiencies in the journey in and of itself. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. I like that idea of the efficiency but it is cool especially when it comes to like hand sanding or something that was really aggravating before and all of a sudden it's like wow this is clever or this is some new thing and a lot of times it just comes from the discipline of doing whatever it is over and over again and I think part of that for me is just the understanding that things are going to change in ways that I might not like them to change even if I plan them I'm kind of ready to shift with the whatever is going to happen. You know, if it's going to happen, I'm going to have to go. I, I don't have, you know, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to move forward. And so that works really well in work, but it's also working really well in uh, trying to reestablish this shop and our business and all the other things that we were doing along with it. So, well, it is thinking, interesting. thinking about that idea of kind of making changes based on what's going on. When you think about your work, when I when I, I was thinking about your work a lot a lot in the last couple of weeks, I was getting ready for, to have you on, and, and I and actually, there's something that I you know this isn't really a, a big admission, but I had never seen in in real life I had never seen a long knife like a machete or a big chopper or anything like that, 
until I was about 10, my dad served in China, Burma, India in World War II. He was in India. And he brought back what we called, what well, he, I, he brought back this knife and I, obviously I'm, I'm, I was born in 1973. So I, you know, he had it on a bookshelf and one day I went up to him and I, I said, what is this? And he said, well, take a look at it. You just can't pull it out of the sheath. And it was this curved knife. I thought, be honest with you, I thought it was a boomerang. Like I thought he had a, he was, it was a boomerang. And he told me it was a Gurkha knife. He, that's what he called it, called it Gurkha knife. And he said, this is from uh, a battalion of Nepalese soldiers who were served, you know, the, whatever. And this is the knife they carry. So he's like, and he says to me, he says, you can't take it out. And I said, well, why not? I want to look at it because you can't take it. There's a, there's a ceremonial, you know, this is a ceremonial knife. And you, you can't take it out of the sheath unless you're planning on drawing blood. And I was 10, freaked out. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, you take it out. You're going to have to cut yourself or somebody. And, and I was just like, I'm not. So I, he caught me in the kitchen with a bottle of ketchup. Because my plan was, I was 9 or 10, I was planning on putting some ketchup on, on my finger so I could take it out and see it. But he's just like, he knew what I was doing. They don't have squeeze bottles back in the you know early 80s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm standing there with a knife in the sheath and a, but a bottle of ketchup trying to get ketchup out. The kookery has become something that I, I, that's clearly, as American knife makers go, you are synonymous with the kookery. What is it about the kookery that you were drawn to? Oh, man. Um, so I had this thing, I think, how it came about, and it was always fascinating to me. I found one when I was a kid, and I just thought it was super badass. And I heard the same tale, you know, like, oh, you can't draw this out. And these guys were ferocious warriors during World War II. They... You know, they were asked to go um, do an airborne mission amongst the, you know, into some Turkish territory, I think, and half of them volunteered. And uh, when the when the rest of them found out they were getting parachutes, then the rest of them volunteered too. <laughs> so the first group of them thought they were just like, we just jump in with no parachutes, okay, we'll go. And they go, oh, we all getting parachutes? Oh, great, we'll all go. <laughs> and I always thought that was cool, but the origins of the blade go way back, and it, I'm not saying it is but it could be when alexander the great was travel you know he was conquering the world going through that area in the world and you know he could have left remnants of some you know greek sword of kopesh or something like that and that's kind of where it may have come from but i've heard all kind of mythological tales about the kukri and um i've had some good ones that were old and i've had some junkers and one day i was just like uh, I always liked choppers because I grew up in a swamp, so I was always making these recurve choppers, and I like recurves, and it's kind of the ultimate recurve in a way. So I just made what I thought was a better version of it, and I just improved what I wanted to improve on it, and then I put my little shark fin on there. You know, I always I think that was a fun thing to give a edge a, a place to stop and start, and then. There, you know, there it was, and then I accidentally started putting fullers in them. I didn't really mean to do that. That was a, a mess up. And then uh, I was just trying to grind out the scale. I'm like, wow, that looks kind of cool. So I just kept doing it. You know, I was like, it just it just developed into something interesting. And oh, I get you, we get tired of looking at the same old knives. I think the first one I made was 
sometime in the 90s and then as a as a full-time bladesmith I, I feel like I redefined it in about 2010 or 2012 I'd put a lot of focus and intention into it I the the, the is fascinating because there and it made me kind of think about knives of history and the idea of generational information the idea of people being conduit from the past to the future and yeah. it, it what what was interesting to me was uh when I, thinking about my dad's kukri at one point i i honestly thought and like i said i didn't start calling it a kukri i think until like you got you started calling until you you said that's the name of the knife i heard you say it on something i'm like we just called it a gurkha knife you know we didn't we had no my dad had no idea it had two little knives with it one knife was a tiny little knife that was, the, was a small version of the of the kukri and another one was this one that was blunt blunt on both sides and it part of me when i was in high school i thought maybe this is like a maybe this was like like a theatrical knife or something like that is why would this have no why would this have no blade i mean it was basically like a cut out heat treated bar and i did yeah. some research and then what i found was that how symbolic all of those parts are and that knife that I thought was just a blunt knife is called a chakmak, and they were used for lighting fires and stones and stuff like that. And then, then there was yeah. another smaller version called the carta. When I was thinking about the, symbol, the symbology, the symbolism of kukris and old knives, and it, what's interesting is you say that you didn't mean to do the, um, the, the fuller on the inside. I was kind of, I always wanted to know there above the handle. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're just like, what's a kukri? So it's like a curved knife and then the handle doesn't have a, doesn't have a guard and the handle, the traditional ones have like almost like an hourglass shape with this kind of rib in the middle of it. And then right above the finger is this weird little notch. You know, it almost looks like a horseshoe or like, um, like a, I, I read that it's, it has this symbology, uh, in in a lot of kukris do you know about it at all yeah i know a bunch of versions of it and maybe some even really strange ones they call it the trident of shiva um but they also it's like Shiva's one of those god goddesses that's like a hermaphrodite so it's both so it could be either shiva's <laughs> clitoris or a penis right i know that sounds crazy but that's one of the the more hidden meanings of it but you know people look at it as just the trident of shiva so I, the, it's, it's pretty wild the couple of things because i had actually i i mean it's it was so pronounced that it seemed like one of the things i heard was it was because it was for where the blood drain like if you had blood on the knife it would automatically drip off that so there wouldn't be blood on the handle so your hand wouldn't slip Nah. And then there well, it's was pretty sticky. It, it, and then there was this other thing about, um, you know, it was just basically there was all these like, what, what is the other thing? Uh, uh, the notch near the handle of the blade is a Hindu fertility symbol. It's also the weapon of Shiva, known yeah. as the trident. So the notch forbids slaughter of sacred animals with it. The Gurkhas also kept a promise that they wouldn't use the weapon on women or children. Nevertheless, the knife was a lethal weapon. The notch, on it, the notch on it was also for blood to drip off rather than down the handle, thereby preventing the handle from becoming slippery so the user can maintain the further grip. Um, what I, I like the I like I love I love the idea and your history with knife making and bladesmiths and long knives as well is there's this like there's this huge part of knives that are very ceremonial 
like if you look about, I mean, if you read about uh, kukris now, it's, you know, every Nepalese groom has a kukri when they're getting married. And this, the symbolism of, of the kukri in and of itself is represents the, the Gurkhas and all that. It's almost as if as we've kind of grown older now, there are not as many knives made today that have all these like religious or symbology involved with them. Right. Well, I think sometimes they just it, it gets made up and added to also, you know, like the when you're a kid and you see a knife with a, a blood groove in it, people are always like, Oh yeah, if you stab somebody with it that relieves all the air or the pressure so the knife can come out really easy. <laughs> I found out I was like that's none of that's true at all, um, but it's you know those are always to make something lighter or more stiff or reduce weight or to enhance you know, something that the knife can do. But that the whole idea of the blood groove is kind of uh, I don't know where it came from, but it might have came from the K bar when people were saying these things back a long time ago. Well, one of the things that I love the most right these days is the forged in the forged in blood grooves or fullers are so great because they that idea of forging it, the material doesn't just evaporate, doesn't disappear. It just kind of expands everything out a little bit. And it's you have this you have these beautiful moments of like the the uh, the evidence and remnants of the forging process in and of itself. Yep. It's a it's a definitely a fun one and a challenge. You know the the funny thing I can't find a lot of evidence that especially in swords and I know this is a little different that they were actually forging the fullers in, and um, a lot of the evidence shows that they scraped them in or ground them in. Huh. And uh, so you know we always like to imagine that people were working so much harder back in these ancient times that. We don't know anyone alive who was there to watch them do this stuff. And because it was making things out of steel, it was very secretive. So we have a lot of imaginary, mythological ways. But, you know, the one culture we can still see exactly how they made swords, they did the same way for a thousand years as in Japan. All the, you know, the traditional swords, like Yoshindo Yoshihara, you know, he's still making swords the way they were making them a thousand years ago. It's pretty cool. Have you spent a lot of time with with those types of swords? Uh, early on, I was fascinated by them. I was taught how to do hamons with clay by a guy named Don Fogg, and uh, he was one of the first people I ever saw do it. You know, do all the crazy choji and all the all the stuff was on swords. But I was putting it on fighters and. Bowie knives and stuff, and a lot of people were using a torch back then to do it. But I would, I would actually do the clay, because that's what Don did, and I thought that was just cool. So, all the different reasons to do it, and all the reasons to not do it, um, I've explored it. <laughs> so, it's beautiful, but uh, it has its place, and it's very fragile too. You know, you put it on a kitchen knife and start using it, it'll go away pretty quick. You know, so well, a bring- lot of that stuff is interesting. Bring me back. Bring me back to you're a young boy. It, it's a, it's very famous that you say that you saw Conan. Conan was your your movie, and 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 you saw them making uh, swords. And what got you into? What was? Do you remember the first knife you made? Uh, yeah. I oh man, it was a big obstacle in the way. I uh, I had imagined. I think a lot of people do this when they're early on making anything. Like you, you're not good at it. 
It's just not. I don't know anybody right. who's just good at anything. And I had this image of what I wanted to make, but I couldn't make it. And I struggled for years just to pull it off. And then I, I kind of might have had some of the wrong teachers. Um, I was learning how to make knives. There was a maker not too far from where I lived in South Carolina. It's very famous for making these big, beautiful, hollow ground fighters and stuff. And he's still around. Um, I don't usually say his name. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. He's a he's a great maker. He does cool stuff, you know. But he was not a great teacher. So every time I do something, it's like, oh, that's no good. That's no good. It's, it's just trash, you know. Just throwing them away. And then um, what got me back into it was running into a guy named George Heron, who was he was wonderful, and uh, he was a very good teacher. And he would say, do this or do this. And here's how you hollow grind something. Here's how you mirror polish it. You know, he'd give you all the steps and just tell you exactly how to do it. But I think the first one I made and finished, they were made out of uh, files. I was in high school. We were grinding them on, you know, like old stone wheel grinder. Yeah. And some of them were sharp and some of them weren't. I remember my dad bring me, brought me home a big piece of mild steel. I was filing a sword. It was like in the shape of that, you know, that Jody Sampson, the um, the, the Crom sword, you know, the yeah. one he finds down in the in the pit down there. But it, But I filed it for... Uh, months and months and then i found out I, it couldn't be hardened <laughs> i don't i don't know where it is i wrapped leather on the handle it's probably out in the woods behind where my mom and dad still live somewhere um, but yeah the first ones were files they had pieces of stag on the handles or um i remember wrapping one with copper one time i'd try all kind of stuff because i just didn't understand the the chemistry of heat treating I did it didn't make any sense to me that was like the magic part of it and I really didn't learn that until 2001 and uh, then I just took its own direction for me I became a really serious student of it and I think that you know like we were talking about sometimes people get to a place and they stop so when I got my master's I felt like I just had the beginning of knowledge of it I didn't really I wouldn't sit there and go, oh, I'm a master bladesmith. I was like, I know the basic stuff to do all these crazy things. So I began to even explore deeper and further with, you know, what I wanted to make, but also like the possible histories of how old things were made. And it changed my perspective a lot on making stuff and designing things and how and why a lot of stuff are made. You know, a lot of stuff we make just because it's cool. Um, one thing I like about making kitchen knives, they're not only cool, they, you know, as you know, they have to work or they don't work. Right. <laughs> it's a knife that you have to put to use and it has to function, otherwise it's garbage. So I always like I always like those kind of knives, the, the taking the practical, usable knife and then making it in your own style, that, but it's still 100% functional and also putting that sex appeal into it. So... That's the hard, I think that's the hardest part that people just don't understand that, that you kind of suck for the beginning for a while and that's just oh, kind yeah. of the way it is. And oh years, I think years. I, I've watched some people just get into it and do awesome, but like for me, it took me from 1989 until 2001 or two to be able to grind to some efficiency where I was like well I'm I'm happy with the way this is looking now I'm getting even flat grinds or even hollow grinds and even plunges um, I think one of the biggest things that helped me is I got a 
I got this gig working for Sporting Classics magazine. They would do a knife of the year every year. And so Art Carter and Ron Stepp came to me, and they said, hey, you want to make 150 hunting knives with guards and handles? And I'm like, heck yeah. <laughs> so I made 150 knives all the same, same grind, same blade, same handle, same everything. But I sure learned how to grind doing that, you know. Where did you Where did you do that? Oh, uh, that was in South Carolina. My old, I had a shop down there where I lived. Um, it was a wood carving studio, and then I went to the – Bill Moran School, which was out in Arkansas at the time, and I learned how to forge and do some heat treating with a torch. And uh, Jay Hendrickson was the teacher. He basically he was cool though. He said, "Okay, boys, here's how you start a fire and get to forging and forge blades." <laughs> so we started banging on metal until we were getting some blade shapes. And then when we did, he goes, "Okay, that's good, that's good." And I remember one of them. He's got, "No, you're probably not going to be any good at this." <laughs> One of the people, you said that's one of the kids, one of the people? Yeah, but there weren't no kids in there. That's oh. the thing, you know. They, mostly, when you have a two-week class, you attract uh, old people and uh, trust fund babies, or you attract crazy people like me who, it's, it's funny, me and Adam DeRosiers would say this a long time ago. It was like, if I had known that that class was 100000 bucks to take it, I'd still had come up with the money to pay it, because you will find a way to accomplish the thing you want to accomplish if you really want to do it. And um, I've, I've been in those classes. I've taught those classes. Uh, I, you know, I have my own school, and I watch people come, and I watch them go. And some people come in, and they want it so bad. It's, it's, it's impressive to watch. People want to do it, and they want to do it good, so they focus intently, and it's really beautiful. Some people knock it out of the park the first time. But I, I help them a lot, you know. I, I guide them. I don't, I don't let them struggle out there. I, I try and guide them a bit. And, but then if I see they're any good at it, I'm really hard on them, because somebody says, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Or, "Hey, will you really tell me how to make this better?" Those are two different questions. So the one I like to ask is, "How do I make it better?" And I could accept any criticism. But if somebody's just showing you something, they go, "Hey, what do you think about this?" I'm like. Oh, I like this. This has got a nice point and this really beautiful purple handle. Cool. <laughs> so, but when you're when you're trying to get better at something like, well, your plunges are trash, and you got to work on that, and you got scratches from this grinder over here, and you want to clean that up, and yeah, you you play with the ideas until you you get it right before you go on to the next thing. I think this, and I don't know about you, but I I like to explore subjects. So, um. You know, with this old shop that's it's gone now, I explored forging a lot intensely and kind of everything I was doing was trying to forge to done, like to finished and uh, developing a style around that, which I didn't invent. You know, Daniel Winkler had been doing it and, you know, they, they, in France they call it brute de forge, just leaving as much forging as you can. Joe Kiesler, there's a bunch of them, but I, I was playing with that really diligently and I think I'm ready to move on to another facet now and go into something interesting. So, the P.S. the Joe Kiesler book is at on the ABS website. It's a, the Brute to Forge book. It's a it's a dynamite quick pickup. Um, I, I how, when you when your creative process, are you thinking about things like over long periods of time? I mean, for me, I think about the like my creative process for a specific design will be over the course of a, maybe a couple of years. Like these 
these tiny steps making it towards what I'm going to do next. And I try, I try to, I try to do the same things I would do if I was making new sculpture for a show. Like it's, it all comes from somewhere. It all comes from the, it comes from the same spot, but there are these small evolutions. Yeah. I call them subtleties. So, um, anytime I'm developing a, a new process, I want to go as direct as possible. I'm not a, uh, I am a fan of the, you know, the mythological, magical aspect of taking a lump of steel and making it into whatever that I want. But I'm a, I'm also a fan of getting there very directly. So I don't, I don't beat around the bush with it. I, w- I want to make the first piece. I'm going straight there, and I'm going to refine the process and refine the process, and eventually learn a better way or a more direct way. So that way, if I want to share it, it's very simple to share. I remember asking people how to do stuff, you know, when I was even just etching Damascus, and they would give me this crazy way to go about etching Damascus. And I wouldn't watch it a video. I mean, I was listening to what they told me, kind of half-ass listening, I, I might add, and then trying to do something. They go, wow, that's interesting results. And then they'd say, well, what'd you do? I was like, I did this, and they're like, no, I didn't tell you to do that. I was like, well, it worked. And, you know, I learned that there's a bunch of ways to do it, and even my way might not necessarily be the best. Not that it's wrong, it just may not be the best. So when I have other makers come in my shop and they're doing something, even if it's not the way I do it, I'm very interested in seeing how they do it because I I like that. I like to learn something new all the time. And it may be better, you know, and it may not be better. But uh, yet I'm I'm gonna do, I'm gonna try and make it better or design. You know, those are really tricky. I think um, very few people in knife making world, and you know this, are not designers. Even though they might say they design something, uh, they didn't really design it. They 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 made something look like somebody else says, you know, and that's cool. And they may have added a subtle thing to it to give it a little bit of a difference, and that's cool too. But when you're trying to come up with something, it's that's a tricky, tricky, tricky one. It's super difficult to make it look good, feel good, work good. You know, it has to have all the above before it's like a, to me a success. But you can go out there and make some crazy and say, "Oh, this is my orc splitter." You know, well, there's no orcs to split it on, so right. <laughs> you know it could be whatever the hell you want it to be. But when you really want to make something function, there's a reason why. A knife has a shape or a geometry, and you're adding the subtlety to it to make it your own, which is really cool. I think that this is this this kind of folds into what I was thinking about in regards to the history of knives and the way we see the ceremonial aspects of knives and how with art and craft, it society and civilization has changed where it used to be about the work in and of itself. You know, if you look at old paintings, it was landscapes were very specific even you know uh still lives are very specific in terms of the fruit and the you know how things were and you get a dog that meant this and you had this and this it were very much along the lines of very traditional and knives too knives and swords too and then art and craft kind of went against not went against but kind of like evolved so it wasn't necessarily about the work in and of itself but it's almost about the maker and the yeah. artists, the artists, it started to become far more about, less about the painting in and of itself, and it was more about the painter. And knife makers now, 
you're we're in this and I, I once again going back to the kukris and going back to these you know uh, Japanese style swords and you have this reverence towards these very specific historically accurate shapes and now we have this it's not necessarily about it's it's our representation of what those are and it becomes more about the user and actually i was thinking about movies and uh, see what you think about do you have you watched any akira kurosawa movies oh yeah <laughs> lots of them when i was a kid my dad got me to watch uh, well i was watching the magnificent seven you know the, the the traditional cowboy movie, Yul yeah. Brenner and James Coburn and and uh, Charles Bronson and and Steve McQueen, and he said to me, he saw me watching, he's like, get this shit off, get this fucking thing off, and he he got uh, the the magnificent the um, Seven Samurai, yeah. And when you watch the Seven Samurai, any Akira Kurosawa movie, I did college papers on Throne of Blood, which was the Japanese version of Macbeth, and I was fascinated by how what Akira Kurosawa what he did with weapons he made if you watch the magnificent seven it's less about the the swords and the weaponry and the armor and the the the, the his, history behind it is almost cast aside it's no because it, all these the, the the seven samurai are defending this village and they're all this ragtag group of ronin and they're given all these swords and stuff, but the swords, you know, they don't even give a shit about the swords. It's yeah. about the, the character of the person in and of itself. And I always feel as though that, you know, we have ch made this change between the iconography of all these swords and issue and, and weapons and, and all these things. And it's more about the person wielding it or making it. Yeah, that's almost like the, uh, you know, the riddle of steel, you know, it doesn't matter about that. It was just the, it's the hand that wields it. Um, we know on, on him, what I love about him is how he would, th there's this is shot on film right. in black and white and it's so well orchestrated and the characters, it's like there's drama and there's comedy and like you're, and it's all in Japanese. So you're having to read the subtitles, but I watch my kids watch his stuff and they're getting they're They're sitting on the edge of their seat one second and they're laughing their head off the second, but it was brilliant and beautiful and you can take those same concepts and put it into your own work, however you do it. I think that that's really cool. But yeah, they they were just objects. There weren't anything magic about them. I think the magic sword thing came about in the nineteen, you know, eighties, maybe late seventy or a lot, all the eighties movies were magic sword movies. You know. But, well, I um, mean, no Kira Kurosawa, no Star no. Wars. I mean, no Star Wars. George That's Lucas right. says. George Lucas says that. I mean, he based two of the characters from, I think it was the Seven Samurai, all over the at uh, the two droids R two D two and C three PO were based off of these two characters from one Kira Kurosawa movie. So no, <laughs> no Kira Kurosawa. You got no George Lucas. You got no George Lucas. You all you Jedi's have got to go. There you you all, go. Yeah, I think there's even somewhere where Lucas is saying he directly. He might have said borrow, but you know he stole it, uh, like any uh, good director or producer would do. So that's pretty cool. That's true too. That's really true. One of my favorite stories that inspired me, as far as swords and spears, uh, was uh, John Carter Mars. Uh, sure. You know, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I was, I was imagining these crazy things he was talking about, you know, and I was like, these Tharks are 12 feet tall. I wonder how big these swords are, you know, these things had to be 
you know, five foot long blades or six foot long blades. How could you sword fight with a guy like that? That'd be crazy. But you were a big neat. Burroughs fan. He's like my mom on her, on her side. Her mom's name was Rice, and he's like a great great uncle, which is kind of interesting. Really? Yeah. Wasn't very pleasant human as far as we can figure out, but I don't know because I never met him. Huh. Don't know. You know, all I know is I like the stories. I Tarzan. Like the stories. I like the Tarzan, Tarzan ones. Yeah. Did you see the uh, John uh, Carter from Mars movie? I loved it. I did too. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I don't know why people gave it such trash. I thought it was great. I I have to. Say, I said the same thing. I was. I saw something say say it was a, one of these huge bomb. All I can think of is I enjoyed the shit out of that movie. Yeah, I did too. I liked it. I I don't know. I liked the idea of that world. It was um, the whole idea of Barsoom and you, the way he would get there was by thought. You know, it was kind of pretty wild. It was a whole nother, um I don't know. I'm I'm uh, mentally tied up into it. Yeah. In a, in a weird way with uh, the way I work on stuff. So I get a little weird talking about it, I guess. It's really it's a fun thing for me. Yeah, it's, it's just Pulp Fiction, but I guess it's, uh, it means more to me. You know, It means a little more to me. And even though it's, it's not super deep or anything, it's just a great, the concept of the story I like. Well, most people like science fiction and these, you know, that whole, se- I mean, Tarzan, Flash Gordon, John Carter from Mars. These are all people who are alone. They're all people who are their own. They're they're by themselves, and they're or they're they're loners, or they're they've been like abandoned by society, or they're in this strange person in a strange world. And there is this kind of sense that with makers in and of itself, you know, makers are makers, blacksmiths, bladesmiths, people working. You know, people have a job, but then they're also maybe they have something on the side in their, their garage. They're all they feel that same way. Like, you can connect. I mean, I was a latchkey kid. I talk about this all the time. I was alone. I was growing up in New York City by myself. Parents were divorced. Mother worked. Father worked. I was let, the doorman let me, give me keys when I would come home from school. And I would be alone. And and, and all I had was, I didn't have, uh, I was, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't doing a lot of reading because I was so scared of being alone and didn't hear voices. Oh, wow. So, where, where were you up there? I was I'm, I was in the middle of Manhattan, but, but wow. what I did was I mean I grew up there. But what I did was I listened to the radio, and I listened to because I needed to feel like I wasn't alone. And when you listen to radio guys, especially I mean I was I mean still to this day Howard Stern is my second father. My two parents, my two <laughs> real parents are Howard Stern in the city of New York. Those are my real parents. They saved my life. Yeah, if it wasn't wild. for the city of New York in the in the eighties. I wouldn't be here. There's just no way. I mean, save my life. Same thing with Howard Stern. And and what happens is, is you become, you know, you, you, you don't feel alone. And that's also these podcasts. Like, I get messages from people saying that you got me through hard times. And it's like, it's this idea of being connected. It's the idea of, like, someone's say, thinking this, they're, they're feeling the same way you are. And those Tarzan, Flash Gordon, uh, Buck Rogers, they're all these solitary people. And they're kind of like... You know, they're connecting with people who feel alone. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's amazing. And we cope with it. And that's how we cope. We cope with finding something that, you know, we can kind of 
understand, even though, you know, you're not John Carter, I know you're not Tarzan, but at the same time, you kind of have these feelings, similar feelings. I, I think how, I think it's important for especially young people to kind of find that something that kind of makes them feel not alone. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I grew up playing in a swamp and, um, it was a beautiful place. And I, I spend a lot of time there. I spend there with, with other people but rarely and mostly by myself and uh that was a it was a great place but uh you know what's funny about new york city is i remember watching some there were some movies in the 80s and people were riding their bicycles all over new york city or messengers like quicksilver yeah those people are crazy i did and that I've, i wasn't yeah. a messenger but i used to bike in new york city I, new york city was is a is a new york city gets a bad rap jason Ooh, it's New York a great City gets place a to ride bicycles. I rode my bicycle all over New York City. I would, I'd ride across the Williamsburg Bridge and I'd ride up to Long Island City and I'd cut across and I'd ride all the way back down and come across the Brooklyn Bridge and ride up through um, Brooklyn and I, I rode all over that place. I worked for a History Channel up there one time for a little while. Right. But that was uh, riding bicycle in New York City was a lot of fun. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I'm sure it was dangerous, but I feel like people were really paying attention to you. Not like, not like here in Tennessee, you get flattened by a car here. They, they don't even know that's a bicycle. It's like, oh, I don't know what that is. I got a Williamsburg, I got a Williamsburg Bridge story for you. So, 1996, I had a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and we were. I was a welding shop, and we were making. I was making sculpture, but I was also doing welding for other. I was doing welding for other. Um, Sculptors making understructures and stuff like that. You know, when you learn how to weld in art school, it's some bullshit. You end up the only jobs you get are working for other artists. And we, it was right when the Williamsburg Bridge was being torn down. And a, and a welder friend of mine said, if you show up to the Williamsburg Bridge with a case of beer and a bucket, and if you ask, they were what they were doing was they were taking off the bridge because rivets, giant, the giant rivets holding it together, were considered out of date, and they were going to yeah. switch everything out with bolts. And we wanted the rivets because they're like, you know, inch and a half rivets and, you know, you can weld them together and make, you know, balls. And it was just like for sculpture was awesome. So we went down with a case of beer and we found one of the workers and we said, listen, we hear that if we give you this case of beer, you'll give us scrap metal from the bridge. And the guy says, okay, just keep your mouth shut. And he gets on his walkie talkie and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, this hook comes down from the sky and they get my, get a bucket and they... And they and then the, the the we put the beer in the bucket, and then the and then the and the hook goes out back into the sky. Can't even see it so far out. Can't even see it. <laughs> and then five minutes later, and then the guy says to me, "Watch for the white hats. Watch for the white hats. If you see any white hats, get beat it. The white hats are the inspectors. Yeah. So we're like we're like, wait. We don't know what the hell's gonna happen. And all of a sudden, this crane comes back with this crate of rivets. I, they said, "What do you want? We want the rivets." They took the beer, the workers of Williamsburg Bridge took the beer and then brought us this enormous, and we had to, we probably about 1,500 pounds of steel that we had to load wow. into a geo prism. 
And the car was like, and, and we had to leave, we had to get out of here fast. And we ended up having a pile of the Williamsburg bridge and I was making sculpture with it. And it was this amazing thing, but New York city, man, New York city gets a bad rap, real bad rap. Now I, well, I I thought in the summertime anyway, I thought it was uh, a fine place. People were, the, the, the New Yorkers were direct, um, they were, I would even say, friendly to a degree. It was a different place, I'm, I'm sure. I'd gone there when I was a kid with my cousins. They lived in New Jersey, so we'd take the train over sometimes and go to the city. But that was in the 80s, and I never had no trouble. I remember I was riding my bicycle on the street on a sidewalk, and the cop's like, come over here. I was like, yes, sir. He's like, sir, where are you from? Where the hell are you from? I was like, South Carolina. He goes, he goes you ain't supposed to be riding your bike on a sidewalk. Don't do that again. I was like, I'm from South Carolina. He goes, all right, I'll tell you what. I don't want to catch you riding on the street. I want to make sure you're riding on that sidewalk. You stay on that sidewalk. You understand? I was like, <laughs> yes, sir. I was like, <laughs> I went in the museum of the, um, it was a, I think it was called the Museum of Native American, or Museum of Native American History. And um, the guy, he, he looks at me. I got a mohawk, and um, got I got a pocket full of knives. I don't know what kind of knives you can have in New York City. I had a Swiss Army knife and have, a, like, one of Bassinelli. It gave me a little fixed blade and something else. He goes, all right, empty your pockets, Cochise. I emptied <laughs> all my pockets. And he's like, uh, he goes, uh, what, what tribe are you from? I was like, oh, my grandma was a Choctaw. He goes, all right, put all that shit back in your pockets and don't tell nobody I'll let you in. So I put them all back in my pockets, and I went through the museum. It was cool. Um, I had a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. Tricked little kids out of the way on the Brooklyn Bridge a little all the all the Asian kids and Latino kids I think are super rude so I quit asking them to move I just hold my foot out and kick them out of the way because they'd be in the bike lane I'm like that's what you do I just kick them out of the way where were you staying when you were in New York did you have an apartment or yeah they we had an apartment my first one was in um, it was in Long Island City yep and uh, I mean all the guys they were riding in a car it was five miles to it was Bushwick where the studio was they they filmed beat excuse me beat bobby flay there now but uh they would take an hour to get there to go five miles i bought a bicycle like a city bike and i'd ride there i'd get there in 15 20 minutes new york's brutal to get around new york's with a car it's like the wrong thing to do how close were you to the you know if you live in long island city you know that uh, and i would imagine during the time you were there you know that the uh, landmark in long island city is the city building is that big green tower that's in the middle of uh, Queens? You, that's yeah. where you. That's like the north. That's like the North Star. If you're in Queens, you'll always know where you are. You can know where the city building, the city building is. Yeah, I was like right on the edge of Long Island City, across the, um, like right across from Northern Brooklyn and Williamsburg. So, and Mike Zeba had his shop at Greenpoint. I don't know if you know Mike Ziba, but yeah. Ziba had his shop over there, and he was he was a good friend of mine. I'd met him years earlier, so he looked out for me pretty good when I was there. Um, but then the next time I went, I went back in the wintertime, and then we had an apartment in Williamsburg. I had one, but I got uh, – <laughs> I let other people stay there because I didn't have any – I mean, I was working for History Channel, but I didn't make enough money to have any money. So I I kind of sub rented my apartment out to some people. That's that's <laughs> totally New York. It's a New York thing but, to do. I remember I went in there. They were having a party, and they had it was snowing really bad, and all the doors were open, and the whole apartment was full of snow. 
And uh, I just thought it was hilarious. I was like, I don't care. I don't live here. You know, it didn't matter to me. But it was a crazy time. But, My studio, yeah. yeah, obviously, you know, the the um, the uh, the bridge that leads from Brooklyn to uh, from Queens to uh, Greenpoint. The uh, it's the um, the Pulaski, Scott, the Pulaski, the Pulaski Bridge. Yeah, that's right. If you walk over the Pulaski Bridge, there's a big uh, red building that's literally on the water. That's where my shop was. Oh, it was, yeah, that's it was cool. 99 Commercial Street, and that's where we used to uh, we used to have parties on the. We used to watch the 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 Fourth of July on the Newtons Creek, and we also had this thing. I had a friend of mine who my, this is my college roommate used to come by, and he was he loved quarter sticks of dynamite, oh, and he would tape them to bricks, and we would light them and throw them down in the, at night into to the the Newtons Creek because the explosion would light up the underneath, and it was this amazing. You could see it was actually beautiful. I mean crazy and amazing and <laughs> and uh but uh yeah i had many great experiences in that area yeah i rode over to pulaski bridge a lot a lot a lot of times I, that's that was... how i i used to take this i used to get to the shop I'd, I'd skateboard i'd take the seven train get off at get off and get off over there and then i would skateboard across the pulaski bridge it's just and then actually i watched the the new york city marathon there too oh well yeah there was no way you couldn't take the train straight down to the place you had to go all the way into like union station and then take another train to get over there five miles away It'd take 45 minutes an yeah. hour on the train but i did like doing it i would go get lost on the train and and then figure out how to get back i think the farthest i rode on the bike one time i rode all the way to coney island one time whoa and, uh, that's a that's a haul but i didn't know what i was doing i was just doing it you know, I I think that that's very impressive. How much I I love I love the fact that you love New York because I I am I'm constantly actually one of the things I do do I, I did on Knife Talk was I made a, I I used to talk to some people who were would go on Forge and Fire and I'd say well if you lost what do you do you sit in the room and they say yeah sit in the room and I made this I made this I said on Knife Talk I said listen if you're in this I said listen if you're in Stanford and you don't have anything to do. DM me, no questions asked. Don't tell me what you're doing, and I'll give you a itinerary uh, for New York. I have sent 12 of the contestants. I don't know. I, I'm assuming they were. I would give them a huge – I don't want you to think that New York is a terrible place, and I'd give all these guys from Mississippi and from all over the, all over the place, I gave them a tour, a guided tour of New York. And it was like it turned into this underground – I mean, I think 12, 13 people – send me a message they'd say all they would say was i'm in stanford i don't know what to do with myself today i give them the train schedule i tell them where to go get the restaurants to go to i any ask people you know if you're if you ask a new yorker they'll give you directions they're not you know terrible people but that must have been quite a experience going from you know north carolina to living in new york well charleston well the food was charleston's got a great food scene i grew up down in charleston south carolina but i remember i so me and Marekko had this guy who's I, I think he bought knives from Marekko too. It was um, a guy named Riyad Nassar. And Riyad had a he had a restaurant. He had several restaurants throughout New York City, and um, they were there competing against each other. And somehow we ended all meeting up because they were like, "Don't talk with anybody from the from the show." And like it was it was you know they had already competed and it was kind of over. So then. If it was somebody I knew, I'd always go hang out with them, you know. Right. I didn't know a lot. Of, I didn't know a lot of people, but 
I had fun. You know, it was good. It was it was uh it was terrible when I went back in the wintertime. I I couldn't wait to get out of there. Oh, New York's bad in the winter. New York's bad in the winter. There was a guy who made motorcycles though. He was in he was in Bushwick. He had a he had a he, he was kind of well known for doing aluminum bodies and gas tanks and stuff on motorcycles. And I went into his shop one day and I said, "Hey, oh, I can forge." He goes, "Oh, really?" So he cut out this teardrop, and he goes, okay, we'll forge that into a billet if you can forge. So I, he goes, I want to be able to stand on it and, like, put a speedometer. And I was like, okay, so I beat on it. Probably took me two hours. And um, and I was using his English wheel and everything, and he came back. He's like, dude, you really can forge. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny, but I'd, I'd go there. That was a, a respite. That was in the wintertime. It was, that was, it was hell to be there in the wintertime. I couldn't wait to get out of there. Was, and that was not Indian Larry. No, no, he was dead. He had yeah. already died, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So, actually, the funny funny thing is, and I've said this before, is before I got into blacksmithing, before I got to the Center for Metal Arts, years before, I, in, in, um, in, in Long Island City, there was a, one of the best blacksmiths in New York, was a, a place called Koenig Ironworks. And the lead blacksmith, it was a huge company that made, they erected buildings and they had, a, they had enough money to have these monster power hammers and they would do uh, ornamental ironwork. And this guy by the name of um, Jake Ryan, Jake Ryan was the master bladesmith there, master blacksmith there. And he would do all the, Jack Ryan, Jack Ryan, John Ryan, Jake Ryan, it was Jake Ryan. Let's go with Jake Ryan. And he was one of the, he was, I forgot, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost 100% sure it's Jake, Jake Ryan. And he was the one who almost got me into blacksmithing, and I, and I ended up not going, dealing with him at all. But, you know what, bring me, bring me back, bring me back. Bring me back to when you had finished, you'd made those knives, back to when you actually, got a, I wanted to just kind of go back to when you made those 150 knives, those 150 knives. Did you... When you had to make 150 knives for this guy, a guy comes up to you and says, I want you to make 150 knives the same. Did you have days of dread or did you enjoy the whole thing? Oh, I enjoyed the whole thing because I had done a bunch of, I was, a, I did sculpture and I was a wood carver and I was always kind of, I always felt like a loser. Um, I, I, I really didn't know uh, what to do with myself. You know, I, um, I kind of, Felt like I was just going to change tires my whole life. And then, so when I got to knife making and I was able to do this thing, which is, I had dreamt about it since I was a kid. There was, uh, you know, burn the boats that I arrived in and burn the bridge. And I'm not ever going back that way again. So anytime someone would challenge me with a project, I was, I was doing it. I was all in. I was going as fast as I could go. So I loved working in that shop and I made wooden patterns and I would forge to the pattern so that's like the first time I did that I would just forge it right to the pattern and I'd go grind I did about five I figured out the most efficient way was doing like five of my time that was pretty good and I would drill all the holes at first and then file them and I'd fit them up they were bron all bronze guards and I did uh, bacote handles so finding enough bronze and bacote was tricky yeah <laughs> it was all silicon bronze but uh I eventually got a little mill, and I would upgrade tools, and I, I didn't realize until, uh, I'm going to say about 2014, I really could have any tool I want. That's why when I meet people who are, they're doing this for their occupation, 
I always tell them, I said, don't hesitate to get a tool no matter what it costs because it actually is, it doesn't cost anything. And if you're convincing, you're, you're trying to justify it, you'll never get it. But when you realize the tools, they don't cost anything when you're doing this for your occupation. But, you know, I love that. I love doing it. I loved hand sanding them. I loved forging them. I loved grinding them because I was learning. I was getting better. I was developing a style. I was... Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I never dreaded any of it. I didn't dread any days of knife making ever. I never dreaded it. I still don't dread it. Sometimes I get tired, you know, like I get, I just get worn out, but it might be with a subject. So I would, you know, I'd change subject real quick if I needed to or do something else or whatever. But, um, back in those days, man, I loved it. And I did it a bunch of other times too. So they had one time they wanted to do 150 knives, but I said, let's split it up. So I made 50. Burt Foster made 50, and then this guy Jim Rodeball made 50, and then I did another one where it was all like this ancient mammoth ivory, so the guy provided all the mammoth ivory for me, and I made, I think I made 20, because it was a 25th anniversary, so I made 25 knives, and they were Damascus with mammoth ivory, but I just kept doing it, because I always liked that, I always liked to, to go, f just, I was learning, you know, same thing with now, I was like, I'm learning, especially forging stuff like crazy forgings or any kind of blacksmith job. It, it's funny because people go, well, you're not a blacksmith, you're a bladesmith. It's like, I'm a blacksmith also because I, I worked at a rice, this old rice plantation down there. It's called Middleton Place. If you've ever seen like The Patriot or any of those movies, they film it there. They film parts of it there. <laughs> but I would make a hinge or whatever or a latch or, you know, all these blacksmithy stuff and I'd forge knives too, but I would make charcoal because I, I taught myself how to make charcoal because that was the the stuff they were providing was garbage, and then I found out that they didn't use coal; they used charcoal. So I'd make charcoal. But that was a bunch of stuff I threw in there at one time. That <laughs> that no, it's it's perfect. So that job, how long were you at that blacksmithing job for? Uh, I did it every day. I was like from nine ish until whenever um but so, i was oh from so when you were nine years old no no, no no i was i was i was i was uh when i first started in 2001 so like when i got that job doing those knives that's where i started making those knives was okay. at middleton place and i had a gas forge at home but i i forged them mostly i just forged them there all by hand i didn't have any power tools um i just hammer them out but uh it was fun i mean i loved it i, I dress in like colonial clothes and uh, I never wore safety glasses. It was the dumbest hell. I, they didn't. I don't know why. We just didn't wear safety glasses. I can't even tell you why. I don't know why. It was it like a re a recre a recreation? Yeah, it was like a recreation. It was like well, an I mean, anachronism. But they don't. I um, mean, back in the day, they didn't have. I mean, they're probably trying to be. I mean, I'm being funny right now, but they were probably trying to be accurate. Yeah, they were trying to be accurate. Um, they. Oh, uh, this is. I met Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh really? Yeah, it's 2001. He he wanted to purchase me. <laughs> Wait a second. Let's start yeah. the story. This is perfect. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen of Borat, of, yeah. of Bruno, of Ali G. How did you meet Sasha Baron Cohen, and what did he charge? What did you charge him? <laughs> so I didn't know anything. I didn't know who he was or anything. He hadn't busted out on the scene yet, really. Not with the Borat character. 
So this guy comes up and he goes, uh, pardon me, sir, I would like to, we would like to interview you perhaps for Kazakhstan Television. Would you be interested in signing this release form so that we can use the videography for our show? I was like, sure, I signed it. So he comes in and he's looking around at my shop and I'm like, who is this goofball? Was he dressed as Borat? Yes, he was dressed oh as Borat. Oh my God. But I didn't know what that was, you know, because that, that didn't come out yet. So he goes... He goes, hello, I, um, we need to be very quiet because I don't want your master to find I am talking to you and I know you are a slave. I'm like, like I'm not a slave. He goes, I see you are a slave, don't, shh, let's keep it quiet, please. I was like, okay, I was like, I'm just demonstrating blacksmithing, you know, like they would have done here on the plantation. He goes, let me purchase you. Just let me buy you. I will buy your freedom. And uh, he picks up my hammer. He goes, I'll give you $100 for this hammer. I'm like, I'm like, what are you talking about, man? I'm like, just let me do my demonstration to quit being a weirdo. And then uh, he goes, I will give you $200. Then you can buy your freedom for you and your woman and your little children. I was like, I think you got the wrong idea what I'm doing here. I'm just demonstrating blacksmithing. Let me show you. He's like, we don't have a lot of time. You need to decide if you're going to be free or not, sir. I was like, all right. And then the, the guy who was the security guy, this guy, Jim Whittle, he he ran him off and I didn't see him again. And then me and my wife were sitting in a movie theater like two years later. And he goes, hello, my name is Borat. And I said, that's the guy, Shelly. That's the guy I was telling you about <laughs> two years ago. He came in an interview trying to buy me. <laughs> did, it, would, would, did it ever make it on his show? Or I know no, that I wasn't stupid enough to get the show. I wasn't that dumb. I didn't say the the right dumb things to get on it, but it was funny. It's still funny now when I think about it. You know, speaking of the, you didn't say the dumb things. It's funny that you say that because years ago I was at a bakery and um, the Daily Show with, uh, what was his name? The guy who did the Daily Show. Uh, Stewart. No, yeah, John Stewart had a, Stewart. sent a guy who turned out to be Stephen Colbert down <laughs> to the shop. And what was happening was there was a story in the in the paper going around that they were trying to cancel Cookie Monster. That Cookie somebody was saying that Cookie Monster was bad influence on children, right? Yeah. So they came down to our our bakery, and my my uh, the guy I was working for, my boss, was totally wacko, and they wanted to do this real interview with him, but he wanted to like be uh, Three Stooges or something like that. And Stephen Colbert was interviewing him, and he was, and my friend, my boss was trying to be too funny, and then it never went on. But it was that whole thing of like we didn't kind of go with the bit, like you didn't go with the bit with Borat, and they didn't use it, and my my partner didn't go with the bit with Stephen Colbert, and we weren't on the Daily Show. Yeah. <laughs> TVs That's for the birds. Funny. You can forget I stole, it. I sold Stephen Colbert's mama oyster shucker. Um, they're from the Carolinas, right? Yeah, it's from Charleston. She was at something I was at. It was like a heritage thing. I'd forged all these shuckers out of uh, rebar, and uh, and she she bought one of them. Huh. She goes, you might have met my son. His name's Steven. He's on TV. And I'm like, yeah, I know who he is. I never met him, though. But, I bet she says that all the time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yep, was like, that was like 2012, I think. Speaking of speaking of which, I mean, I, it, speaking about Charleston, I would be remiss to say that um, once again that you know, besides the fact that you've been a student of such great makers, you've been such an important 
teacher to so many great knife makers. And one thing I can't not think about is, is uh, Quentin Middleton, who I've had on here a long time ago. I talked to Quentin, you know, pretty, not as often as I should, but it's, it's amazing how you've kind of transformed his life. Yeah, he's pretty wonderful, actually. Um, he's he's uh, one of my favorites. He's a, and talking about a great businessman too, though. I mean, what a great business mind! I had no idea. I met him when he was a kid. He's making all these kung fu weapons. He's like, Mister Knight, Mister Knight, what do you think? I was like, I think it looks like some kung fu weapons. It's cool. You made them out of lawnmower blades and stuff. He goes, That's right. I made them out of lawnmower blades. What do you think? I want to get better. How do I improve my skills? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Um. You got to get a grinder. He's like, okay, okay. I said, like, you could use my grinder. So he used my grinder, and he'd, he'd come, and we got to be friends because I liked him. You know, he was yeah. just, he was very polite. He was genuine. He was a good, a good, and he wasn't really that much younger than me, really. Um, and uh, Wait a second. How old are you? I'm 50. Quentin's right. almost 40, so he's like 40 All right, years thank you. Right. Now, you um, and I are closer in age. Now, I've, yeah. now I'm 49, so we're, now yeah. you and I are closer in age than he is. And then one day he said, uh, "Hang tight." I messed up today. Oh, stop. that's all right. My um, my blood sugar is going high. It's going low. It's going high. It's it's all over the place today. Do you need to take but, a break? Uh, no, no, no. I'm good. So he comes back and he said, "I had a dream and God showed me that I need to make chef's knives." Yeah. I was like, "All right, cool." So he's grinding chef's knives and then. He was coming every day for a week, and I said, "Quentin, do you you live in the country? Do you have you need to get your grinder, you know?" And um, I was like, "Do you got some guns or something you can sell?" He goes, "No, but I got a gold coin collection." <laughs> yeah, I was like, "What is this kid doing with a gold coin collection?" You know, but uh, I guess his dad was a clever and interesting guy. His dad was in like Fifth Group Special Forces back in the Vietnam era, and and was in for a long, long, long time. So Quentin had some. He was a pretty interesting kid, man. So he sold his gold coins. He bought two Wilmot grinders from Chris Williams. And within six months, every chef in Charleston had one of his knives in their hands, using it and giving him feedback and saying, no, make it like this. No, make it like this. Do it thinner. Do it like this. I mean, that's how he got That's how he got the ball rolling. You know, he's just killing it. He was the first person I saw in magazines who was cl- close to my age. Like I had yeah. never seen, I saw, I think the first time I ever saw him was in, it was, a, somebody sent me an article. I'm, I was not making knives at the time, but it was, it was, it was, in, I think it might've been in the New York times and he was in, I think Probably it was the Wednesday was. section or something like that. But like, yeah, he's a fascinating character, but it's, what's interesting to me is when I think of like that whole generational thing, like you were a teacher to him and he was a teacher to Henry Hyde, who I had on, who's also a Charleston guy. Yeah. Um, now he's in Baltimore. And it is kind of this whole idea of being a conduit to the past, you know, and kind of being that teaching, that teacher is how incredibly, you know, how value, I mean, how important it is. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's a cool thing, especially, especially him. I can't wait to go to his 40th birthday party. His 30th birthday party was one of the coolest ones I've ever been to in my life. Had some guy carving ice and, I was teaching all his cousins how to do the weed eater dance I made up with, and we had a good time. Wow. Crazy stuff. He had an ice carver for her 30th birthday? Jeez. Quentin yeah. Milton's five ball. My 30th birthday, I think I had a shot of Jameson's. That's about it. Yeah. Oh, he dresses like GQ. Like He should be on the cover of GQ magazine. He's a 
good-looking cat, but also knows exactly how to dress. So. Well, one thing I wanted to talk to you about is how much I appreciate and I push as much as I can your Forge series. The oh, the your you. your I you know I talk to other knife makers and people who teach, and you know everyone will say that nothing you know no video or YouTube will will um, will compensate for is the same as a in in person situation but the forge series i have them i have all three seasons they are so comprehensive and they're so easy to watch it almost makes it less like an instructional show and more like a tv show oh yeah it's a lot of fun um they're not necessarily fun when we're making them but the idea is to you know teach directly and and share the information so people can do it. I'm glad I could have Steve on that second. Yeah, one. that was really that was intense. Great. I did. We did two more. So there's one other one where it's kind of unplugged. It's I'm making a chef knife and um, it's a little oversized, but you do that for TV, I think. <laughs> and then I just use the forge and a grinder and a hand hammer. I don't use any power tools on it, except for drill. You know, a drill and a grinder. And then I just did another one. It's a Viking hatchet. And that was fun, too. So it's all integral, just one piece. But thank you. I, I'm going to keep making them. I, I got some ideas of how I want to do them. I, I'm not sure how to market them right now, but I'll, I'll figure that out again soon. But, I mean, you've made them very much less like, you know, these stodgy, you know, informational videos. And they are very closer to, like, a, TV, a well-produced TV series. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's the idea. I want anybody to watch it, like from the person who's – if you're interested in, like, that How It's Made show or Modern Models, then I, I tell anyone, I say, you'll like to watch this. You don't have to be a maker. And Some people will be like, oh, I don't I don't make any knives. I was like, well, watch it anyway. You'll like it. And so they do, and thank you. I, it, it takes a lot of work to make them. I'm telling you what, I, I want to do another one, but I'm, like, really putting it off. I don't <laughs> blame you. The done, I'll – I got these, uh, my friends put up these 4K cameras to do live feeds. So I think we got one more we're going to put in there, and then I'll start doing a, like a live feed once a week where I'm maybe just doing a tutorial or maybe I'm making all the way through something. I don't know. And then we'll bring in guests, and then once a month we'll do this thing I invented called Metal Mashing Mayhem. Um, anybody else can say if they want, but. I actually might have it copyrighted. <laughs> but there you go. Get together and have a fun time and spin the wheel. And if it comes up on tentacle, then you got to forge a tentacle. If it comes up on bottle opener, you forge a bottle opener. Oh, that's fun. Almost anything but knives. We'll make anything in it but a knife. That sounds like fun. It's a lot of fun, bro. If you ever come down here, we'll do it. It'll be a good time. Actually, back to the video. The Elemental Chopper. The, the first series, Elemental Chopper, and you guys can go to Nightforge Studios and get it. And let me tell you, it's worth it. And usually, speaking of which, and I don't know if Jason wants to say this or not, but he usually has sales on holidays on these videos. I think that's when I picked up Steve Schwarzer and then the uh, Integral Chef Knife. And it was like a holiday. He had like some sort of maniac sale. And I was just like, all right, well, you can't get much better than this. Yeah, yeah. We usually try to do it. We're Like I said, right now, there's so many things that are in flux. I want to get back on those and kind of reboot them and market them again. But when we get off of here, I'll make sure I can get you the two new ones, and then you can you can look at those two. I'll pay. I pay. Yeah. 
I pay. I I I got in on your your Kickstarter. You don't need to give me nothing. I oh wow, thanks. Oh, <laughs> dude, listen, we got to get into that too. But I wanted to say two things about the the elemental chopper. One is the funny thing is is like I could there were these moments that I could tell you were frustrated. That was me. And one of them, I think you were gluing the handles and the pins, and you were like just mixing up the epoxy, and you were you were just like, all right, this isn't. Sometimes this doesn't go as quick easily as it seems. Makes it. You made it seem like you're a normal person putting a fucking handle together with pins, and you were just like, all right, sometimes. It's this isn't this isn't as easy as it looks, okay? And the, you were you, the the a pot, you were trying to get the epoxy going, and I was thinking, oh, Jason's not having a good time here. And the only other thing I wanted to say was, and this is peace and love to Steve Schwarzer, who I love. I've had him on before. I want to know how much editing was done on, the, on that episode because they must have like they must have like three full seasons just of Steve Schwarzer stories because Man. that they had to they had to rip him down. Oh boy, yeah, he. I don't know. He went and shot his session literally in an afternoon. Like, he's a master. He just went in and like, loop. this is what you do, this is what you do. But, yeah, when he starts telling stories, you know, you just sit back. <laughs> sit back and listen. But, yeah, I love him. He, he is he's a, another he, kid. I've known him forever. I mean, since he had hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, he must have been a teacher of yours, yeah? He was uh, not a direct teacher, but he was always an encourager. He would always encourage me. Um, he was always a friend. He, you know, I remember the first time I met him, I was looking for Don Fogg at this event, and and um, I asked, I knew Jim, this guy, Doctor Jim Batson. I said, "Where's Don Fogg?" He goes, "Oh, he's floating over there on a magic carpet. Him and Steve Shores are probably floating around on magic carpets." <laughs> and we were at the Batson's Hammer Inn down in. Uh, Somewhere in Alabama, I can't remember the name of town, Ten Hill State Park. So I go over there, and sure enough, Don Fogg and Steve Schwartz are floating around on a magic carpet. Not really, but they're talking. And I was like, hey, um, I was like, I'm Jason Knight. I just wanted to introduce myself and meet you guys. And they were both just polite as they could be and always friends. And, you know, this is cool. This never, never gave me any trash or anything. Never even He never even picked on me until now. He didn't start picking on me until the last four or five years. <laughs> Steve Schwarzer? Yeah, he's right. always very cool. I'd make something, and he'd like, wow, I like what you're doing. And he always liked my style. and He even, um, he bought some stuff from me before. I can't remember what year it was, but back 2009 or 10, he was buying some stuff and selling them to some collectors over in Germany. But I'd make Steve whatever he asked. I sent Steve Schwarzer. I had a friend of mine was uh iron worker working on the Tappan Zee Bridge, which – um, it separates the, the, it's, it's basically, it's higher up on the Hudson than the, than the George Washington bridge. And a friend of mine gave me a pile of rivets and steel from the, uh, Tappan Zee bridge. So I put a, I put a box together and sent it down to Steve to see what he could do with it. Um, That's cool. yeah, it's super cool. I'm a big fan of all those riveted structures. There's a train trestle here. And I always feel like it's like, if they ever take that thing down, I'm going to have to get as much of it over to my place as I can because I just think it looks cool. It's amazing. And now, you know, thank God that there's places like the Center for Metal Arts where they're actually, they have, um, they have classes on, on riveting. And it's just this, yeah. it's just this, there's, I, what's interesting to me, and I'm wondering what, are, what you think is, and I know that the, 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 how time has changed with, the popularity of of you and the tv shows you've been on and stuff like that when you go to the blade show you are like i mean you are like a rock star when you get there how do you feel the knife community has changed over the years 
it's it's really interesting how uh, I've watched the the rise of the new maker and the in the in the neo tech maker and the you know and the the decline of certain things and then just a, a the popularity going in a different direction. So that's always fascinating to me to see what is happening. And now you know we're living in CNC and 3D printing. So it went from a teeny little community, I think, where almost everyone knew who each other was, to the internet makers who, some of them are really great, but but I think a lot of times they, they get pretty ignorant about the community. So when they show up at something and they have their work, they don't know anybody, but they should. Like all the new makers should be a student of the old masters. They should know who Steve Schwarzer is or, or Don Fogg or, um, you know, any of these old guys or George Heron. They should, they should study this stuff. And it doesn't look good on anybody to come and be an arrogant, ignorant young person at a knife show where you're, you know, you're literally only able to be there because of these legendary people who paved the way. Um, but the, the good side of it is that there is a whole new generation and there's a lot of young people. My daughter makes knives. My son makes knives. My daughter's fiance, he's a professional axe maker. And there's all these young people that are in their, their early to mid-20s. And when I was doing this, there was none of that. There was no, like I said, there was the, the age gap. There was 10 people 10 years older than me. And there wasn't really anybody younger than me that I could think of at that time, you know, in the early 2000s. But it's really neat to see the rise of all these young folks coming in and, and coming up with neat stuff, like Will Stelter, you know, just being, making cool stuff. And then the rise of the chef's knife, that's another beautiful thing, I think, because we, we have these ages of making where, like, buoy knives are popular or fighters are popular. They're always going to actually be fighters. Fighters will. I don't know about buoy knives. But, but then the chef's knife is like, it's hot because everybody knows how to use it. Or, or well, we imagine that we know how to use it. <laughs> I was about to say I'm about yeah. to make a I'm about to make a hot take that most 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 chef knife makers don't cook. So I mean I mean that's what I what I know. Yeah. So but you know I got a pretty big we me and my wife we both well she cooks I'll prep food I like to cut up stuff but man probably the largest amount of knives I've got I've got knives by Kamimura uh I got a whole bunch of them man. And the students make me knives and bring them back to me and give them to me. I got some crazy, beautiful, integral Damascus stuff from somebody who took a class with me. And just crazy knives, a whole pile of them. And it's, it's really nice. I gave Steve that one we did, that third knife, the integral one I, I made in the series. I gave that one to him. And, uh, and then I gave my dog a couple years later. I saw that. I saw that. Very generous. <laughs> well, that was... needed a dog. That was what I was going to say is it's, you know, it's interesting that you say that people need to know who these, uh, these, these old school makers are. I mean, since your fire, the, the amount of people who reached out to us at Knife Talk about helping you guys out and the amount of people who are reached out to you and are helping that, you know, your daughter has daughter, Tiger Lily. Oh, I have a question about Tiger Lily, but we're going to get to that in a second. They 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 re, they had, they're doing a Kickstarter for your family, and I know that you, there's a Kickstarter going on for your son Tristan. I mean, that's the I mean, that's how much you mean to all these people. Yeah, it was uh, overwhelming. 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 Yeah, it's really cool. Question. Really cool. 
Tiger Lily, the name Tiger Lily, was that Peter Pan's Tiger Lily that you came no. up? No. No. We it's a flower. Yeah. Tiger Lily flower, yeah. Huh. I just liked it. And, okay. You know, so she's Tiger Lily. At one point, I, my daughter's name is Lila. So I there's a there was this I you know there wasn't a I just for some reason I was my my kid loved Peter Pan and I thought maybe eh, maybe yeah. it's, it comes from the Tiger Lily for the character. Yeah. So the last thing is, and I'm going to leave you alone. You've been you've been incredible. Um, the hummingbird, the Kickstarter for the hummingbird. Are you enjoying working with these types of projects? Where with Kickstarter? Oh yeah, um, that's the first time we did Kickstarter. It was kind of Quentin was the first person I ever saw do a knife on Kickstarter, and I didn't know I wanted to do something on there because I was always fascinated with the platform. I just didn't know what to do, and that's. You know, other, it's kind of funny. Other people, I've lent designs to other makers for years. And then I started to get my own knives produced. And then getting them produced by myself or by my way of having them manufactured. You know, whether I have them made um, in America or in Italy or in Taiwan. Um it's a lot of fun. And then when you can say, hey, how many can you make me? And they're like, oh, we can make this many. I was like, oh, crap. How am I going to sell that many? So it was like Kickstarter would be a great one to sell. It's a great community. And um, I wanted to design a knife that was unoffensive to anyone. It was a small enough knife that people go, oh, that is cute. And it's handy. And it's a great little size. But the proportions you can you could bring them out bigger and it just the proportions remain the same. It's like, hey, that's great. Now it's a now it's a three and a half inch knife. You know, that's what I'm working on right now. But I knew that it would be neat and I thought there was a space for it because of how cute it was and how handy it was. And I'd come up with this knife when I was working with the Winklers. I called it the Tiger Lily and they changed it to the zipper. The idea was just a little small knife that would kind of be a legal flick fixed blade anywhere, probably not New York City or Canada. But anyway, I tried my best, and we had we had this made by some very clever folks who kind of cracked me up a little bit when I said, "Hey, I checked all the knives. Yes, they're perfect." He goes, "Of course." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> He's like, "I told you they were going to be perfect." I was like, "All right," but um. It was cool. I'm I'm glad it was a success. I I knew it would do good. I just didn't realize it would do that good. Like we literally sold every single one of them that we came in on this first batch, you know. So halfway through, we decided to order more, and I'm gonna keep doing it. And right now, I'm working on I'm working on bringing the size up a little bit, maybe 25%, and then getting some feedback from other uh, you know the people who've already bought knives and. Just, I want to make a couple different sizes of it before I change it into something else. Very cool. So what else is, what's next? What's next for Jason Knight? So for me, um, besides having a little bit of a sabbatical here, I'm close to getting into the new shop. I would say about a month out. That's pretty good. Um, canceled all my classes for a while. I don't have any. Uh, you know, we do we do classes like twice a month, but I've kind of cut those off for a little bit. And I want to f- focus on some new folder concepts, just for me personally. And uh, I'll probably put them. I usually put folders in the production. If anyone's noticed, you can't buy a custom-made folder by me, 
even though I've made about 10 of them, I usually just, they're for, they're for the purpose of modeling and, and getting something out there because the t it, I go crazy making one. It makes me crazy. And when I get one finished, I'm like, yeah, I'm not selling that. I, I got, you know, a thousand hours in this stupid thing. There's no way I can sell it. So best idea is have them, have one made, you know, have, have them put in a production. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm doing. And, uh, and then, you know, my custom stuff, I will be making some things for Blade Show. And I have another line. They're not, it's not Night Elements. It's like the Night Forge Studio made. So it's made between me, uh, Josh Morgan, and Tristan. You know, all, all of us are kind of working on these at some part. And uh, Josh is someone who I met at Winkler, and he's got his own gig, uh, Primitive Woods woodsman but we do some projects together too and he's really really good he's really somebody i can trust we're about to add someone else into that too and see if see if we can make that grow a little bit more because i like the idea of bringing people in making stuff and then promoting them too now it's kind of cutting my own throat but i want to see them win i'd rather i'd rather see some maker be able to take their work and get it recognized everywhere you know, and we're we're building a brand, but you know, I have to, I'm gonna have to replace him with somebody. But eventually, he won't, you know, he won't want to work with me on projects anymore, and he won't need to, you know. And that's really what I want to do. I want to get him up to that place where it's totally sustainable for him in a great way. And uh, all the while, you know, it's like I'm I'm directly paying him to help me work on pieces, and it's fun. It'll be cool. It's, it's a good thing. If you don't mind me saying, you seem very centered. You a lot going on right now. You seem very centered. Yeah, I like to stay busy. I'll get melancholy real fast. If I <laughs> if I yeah. don't stay busy, I could I, I could if I'm working or teaching or something. If if my mind is if I'm free in my head too long, I don't know why, man. It's like a, I'm instant melancholy. I'm like, oh, that's not good. I gotta get I gotta do something. So there's something about that satisfaction of completing a project or being able to oh i mean you know that idea of making something with your own hands that was from nothing i'll tell you one of the most inspiring and fascinating things that i've seen just recently is um i got an opportunity to go hang out with tony marfione at microtech and um that is a beautiful thing that's 190 people all moving into the same direction with like precision and and care and I'm like what a I mean, what a cool knife anyway you know what I mean it's like just taking that you know those out to fronts and folds like I'm making them like I just think they're so badass and going through that facility and meeting the people working there and watching what they're working on super cool man like I, I have no idea how how that all got to be so awesome but it's it's pretty awesome it's an awesome thing to behold and um i feel like i don't know about you but for me i think i think autos are very cool uh especially when you can make them work every single time you I mean like car them. oh auto folders i thought you're yeah, talking about cars folders, okay yeah. i don't know i don't know enough about it yeah they're they're cool it's a great company the microtech company what a cool i'm sorry that's me my bad that's sorry 
I'm in the. I'm in the car. I don't know why. That, sorry, that was a. That was my car. I'm sitting in the goddamn car, Jason. And I accidentally hit that. This is the first time in the history of this show. That's the first. Hold on. It's the first time in the history of the show that has ever happened that I accidentally touched the goddamn. The goddamn <laughs> alarm, <laughs> the car alarm. This is where I'm doing. This is what I'm doing, Jason. I, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. Tar- you said auto. <laughs> you said auto, and my fucking car went off. <laughs> and okay. that has what never kind of happened to me before in my what's life. Your, what's your car? No, well, I'm now. I'm in a Jeep. But I mean, oh, nice. you know, whatever. I mean, what kind of Jeep? It's a Jeep a Cherokee, Jeep right. Grand Cherokee. Traded for a sculpture. That's my oh, last. Awesome. My last two cars I traded for sculpture. That's like my move now. And I traded up. So the first sculpture I traded for a Ford Escape. And then the second trade, the second sculpture, I tra- the second sculpture I traded for a Jeep went Grand Cherokee. That is cool. I traded a sword one time for an Airstream that you could drive. It had a 454 Chevy motor and an Allison transmission. And uh, it never did drive very far. But Adam DeRozier's lived in it for a while when, he, when, we, um, when he lived down here with us. And then... A few years back, a friend of mine, I knew he had cars. I needed a car. I didn't have any money. I'm like, I need another car, man. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. If you make me a Damascus, like, uh, Gladius and a Kukri, I'll give you this. Um, it was a 93 Mustang Fox Body convertible. It was the last year they made the Fox Body. And it was a hot rod, man. It was like, blub, 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 blub. I'm like, are you kidding me? He was like, yeah, I'll, I'll trade you. So I made him this sword and the Kukri and... And, I, and he was coming to my house, and I could hear it coming down the road. I was like, that's so badass, man. And we drove it around for a couple of years. Sold it right before we moved up here. But it was fun. Fun car. I never, see, growing up in New York City, I never really had an appreciation for cars. And I didn't even get a driver's license until I was, I was driving illegally until I was 21. And yeah, then, you didn't need to, right? No, no, I, no of course not. There was no, no drunk driving. You're just on the hub subway. <laughs> take the cab or the subway. We weren't. There was no driving. So, yeah, I, like, I never yeah. enjoyed. I had. I didn't have a appreciation for cars. Yeah. Gosh, I took my. I took one of my cars up there one time. I, that was a mistake. Moving it every Thursday and Tuesday. I was like, this is so dumb. I did driver's ed in Manhattan. That's and crazy. and the first day of driver's ed, well, it was in the springtime, so they they allowed us to drive in Central Park, which is awesome. We just look oh. at girls all the time. And then the first day I was on it, the the drive the driving instructor took me on the the um, the FDR, on in in the middle of in the middle of uh, uh, traffic, and I was I'd never been more scared in my life. So, but I like now I like driving in New York. I you kind of actually I have a funny story. I was um, when I was working at the Center for Metal Arts, I was one of the assistants to Uri Hoffi. And at the time, Uri Hoffi wanted to go down to New York City because on Park Avenue, there was a big steel sculpture. Uh, Alfred Paley had a huge sculpture exhibition all up and down Park Avenue. He wanted to go down. So they they said, well, you know, let's all drive down. It was John Ledford, who was the lead guy there, and then Zivik Gottlieb, who was uh, Uri's right-hand guy. And then, yeah, no, Zivik. Uh, yeah, Zivik was there and in the car with this other friend of ours, Gary. They were all in this tiny car, and we drove. Into, and then they're like, oh, Jeff, you know how to drive in New York. You're going to drive. So I drove, and then I had this uh, – Uri went right to sleep. 
right? And I was taking, I was trying to get pictures of him because he looked like a corpse, and it was funny. <laughs> like it was like a weekend. I was making all these weekend of Bernie's jokes, and it was funny. And then we got into the city, and he woke up, and he saw me. He liked it when I would curse at people and honk, and he would say, "Oh, Jeff, I like it when you're cursing and you're screaming." And he called me the cab driver. And he would encourage me to punk and to cut people off. And he was really, he loved it. Every time I beeped at someone or cursed out the window at someone, it would just like, he would just light up. And it was really funny. So driving in the car with uh, Uri Hoffi. And I was always afraid he was going to take a leak in the car, frankly, because I mean, <laughs> it was a long day in the car. But he was, uh, yeah, and he would have done it too. I got stories. I got fucking stories. I got stories. He would have done it too. But um, Jason Knight. I mean, what else can I say? You, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. You're oh, you have open invite anytime. I know you had a podcast for a while. I hope it comes back. I want oh, yeah. you We're know working on it. Yep. get your get yourself squared away. But you always have an open invite here. And uh, go, guys, go follow. You already know. You already know. It's uh, for it's Jason Knight on Instagram, Jason Knight Studios, and you can go to Forge. You can go to NightForgeStudios.com where you can get the Forge series. Definitely get the Forge series, and I'm sure there's information on how you should definitely get on that Kickstarter for the Hummingbird. I got mine. Can't wait for it to come. Jason, all I wish for you is the best. You and your family get through this. You're a, gr you have a, you're a man of grace and character. Uh, you've, throughout this fire and the, and the birth of your grandchild, you've been, uh, you've been, grace is the word I would say. The grace is the word I would use. Well, thanks, brother. I appreciate that. And it's always fun to get on here and talk about stuff and some of the things that we find out we have in common. It's always interesting. All right, guys. You know what to do. Go help them out. You go follow. I know if Liam Hoffman and, and uh, Tiger Lily have a, a, a Kickstarter going, it's going to help. Uh, a Kickstarter. Go oh, fund me. Go fund me. Yeah. And I don't know where Tristan's GoFundMe is. I don't either. All right. No. So we're going we're gonna to have to dig around for that. So go follow yeah. Tristan. And then uh, go help him out. And uh, whatever Jason's doing, you should follow it for sure. All right? All right, guys. We're going to see you next week. Jason, thank you once again. I appreciate you. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Makers.